0: Uh, good morning. It's not my kid screaming, so. Uh, so I'm Tony, and I'm going to be reading from Romans this morning. So we're in eleven one through 2, and then verses 11 through 12. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite and a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Thanks, Tony. Well, good morning. My name is Toby. I'm the associate pastor here. If I haven't, come- um, there's phenomena within the christian world called the dark night of the soul i don't know if it's something that you've heard of but it's it's a night where you just you can't sleep and you're staring at the ceiling and you're wondering how is god going to pull this out how's he going to pull through here it's a night in which everything in you is saying you cannot trust god you cannot trust him you cannot trust his promises felt that maybe you haven't. Um, But Paul here in Romans today, what we're going to look at is I think he's answering some of that angst for the Israelites. So if you haven't been with us, we'll just do a little bit of a recap uh, just to to cover the first part of Romans. So Romans chapters one through about three and a half, um, Paul basically lays out the bad news. He says, everybody is morally bankrupt. Everybody is bad. There is no one righteous. No one is good. No one seeks after God. And the first few chapters are are kind of downers, honestly. Um, And the main point that Paul is making here is there's no one righteous. And the problem with that is that in order to get to heaven, in order to have a relationship with God, you have to be righteous. But nobody's righteous. And worse, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing that you can do to change yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't recycle enough. You can't pray enough. You can't do whatever to make yourself good enough for God. And so halfway through Romans chapter 3, we get a verse that says, But now... Apart from the law, apart from works, apart from me trying to do anything myself, there is a righteousness that has been made manifest. A righteousness that has been made known. So there's a righteousness that we have access to that's not our own. It's in fact God's. So, so there's a way to heaven. There's a way to a right relationship with God. And it's through his own righteousness imputed onto you. The way that you get this is by believing in Jesus, the finished work of his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's yours. You are declared righteous. You're justified in God's eyes. The relationship is restored. You are now right before God. It's wonderful. And then chapters five, six, and seven. Or yeah, five, six, seven, and eight, actually, Paul tells us that not only does this righteousness just be declared about us, but it actually begins to become true of us. We're not just declared righteous, but the Spirit starts to work inside of us, and it actually makes us righteous. It changes us from the inside out. And so that's why we've had this, this story, the this storyline that we've had, It's that Romans is a unifying faith journey from ruin to redemption. And it's a beautiful story that culminates in chapter 8 that says nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Once once you're in, you're in. There's no changing it. We've gone from ruin to redemption collectively, and it's wonderful. I don't think any of us really have any issues with that, do we? A Jew, first century Jew, might have. Because he might have been listening to Paul saying, Paul, this is great. Ruin to redemption, it's wonderful, but from my perspective, it looks like Israel's going the opposite way. It looks like Israel's going from the redeemed people to ruin. What's going on here, God? These are your promised people, and it doesn't seem like you're coming through for them. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. If you haven't already, uh, please turn just to Romans chapter 11. And so if you're an Israelite, it it really seems like, from your perspective, God's rejected his people. He's turned his back on them. And that's the question that Paul opens up with in verse 1. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And Paul says, by no means. Absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. And then he goes on in the chapter, and we'll cover this, but there's three main ways that God has not rejected his people. Evidence. First, there's a remnant. Second, there's a root. And third, there's going to be a return. See the three points, three letters, all the same? It's, it's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. I, I went to school for that. So. <laughs> all right, starting in verse 1. Um, I ask then, has God rejected his people? He says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite So too, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So from our perspective, it, it does seem like Israel. Um, but that's obviously not true. In Paul's evidence of himself. He himself is an Israelite. He himself is from the tribe of Benjamin, Other himself. That he's the the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's he's the ultimate Israelite. And God hasn't rejected him. Paul is still working and in God's plan. Paul has salvation. And so the door wasn't closed on Paul. And the point that Paul is making here is that there currently is a remnant of believing Israelites. This was true 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this letter. And it's true today. God has not rejected Israel. There is a remnant today. The Jews are not completely blocked off. They still have access to grace. And this is nothing new. Paul quotes, and he talks about Elijah. From Elijah's perspective, it seemed like there was no hope for the Israelites. They have all rejected God. There's no hope for them. And what's God's response? No, there's a remnant. In fact, there's 7,000 faithful Jews who have not bowed their knee to Baal. This is nothing new. And this is good news today. It was good news 2,000 years ago. And it was good news in Elijah's day. God has preserved, through his grace, a remnant. Not on the basis of works, but only on the basis of Grace. Paul continues in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it is seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, their table became a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see And bend their backs forever. And so Paul clarifies what he's saying here. He says that the majority of Israel has not found what they were looking for. And what were they looking for? It was righteousness through works. And they didn't find righteousness. Because they were trying to find it through works. The minority found it. The elect found it. Because they found it through grace. And the rest were hardened This sounds kind of surprising to us first that God would harden his own people But Paul again points out that that this idea is nothing new and he quotes from from Deuteronomy and the Psalms but this 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 quote from Deuteronomy is especially helpful In Deuteronomy 29 Moses is talking about a hardening that actually occurred in Israel's past. Uh, Twenty-nine Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 through 6. I'll just read it for you. Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear, Yet the Lord says, during the 40 years that I have led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did your sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord. So there's there's a salvation in Deuteronomy that's right in front of the Israelites' eyes. They don't see it. The salvation's right in front of them. The preservation of the people in the wilderness is right in front of them, and yet they're completely blind to it. God did all that so that way they would know that Yahweh is their God, that Yahweh is their protector, caregiving God, and yet they rejected it, and therefore they're hardened. In that story, the promise there was the promised land. We know how that story ends. They end up in the promised land. So just because they're this his promises, even though it might not seem like he will. And here's the deal. Here's the, here's the point that I think that Paul is, is making. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. He made a promise to the Israelites and he kept it. He made a promise to Israel, and he's going to keep it. He has not rejected his people. God does not make promises he cannot or will not keep. And so from our perspective, it might seem like those promises have failed. But God's work is not swayed by the majority. God is not a democracy. He's still at work. He will keep his promises no matter what. And that's good, for, good news for the Israelites. And it's also good news for us, majority Gentiles. Because there's promises that he's made to us. Whoever believes in his son will have eternal life. He's made that promise. And so you can rest in him and his character to keep that promise. Because that's who he is. That's how he works. Paul continues on in verse 11. He shifts from the remnant to talk about the root. So I ask, did they, Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass has come... Sorry, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles how much more will their full inclusion mean? So has God rejected his people? No, by no means. But something's happening with Israel, right? That's clear. Clearly there's a remnant, and clearly that's the minority. So what's going on? Have they fallen so far that they're beyond recovery? Or is it impossible for them to turn back is the door permanently closed on Israel? Paul says, no. <coughs> Excuse me. And so Paul makes a distinction between what seems like punishment to us and what's actually discipline. The citation from Deuteronomy and that story is a helpful illustration. The Israelites at that time, they're, they're on the border to the promised land and they send spies in. And the majority of the spies say, nope, it's not going to happen. Can't do it. But there's a minority there that says we can do it. And yet they don't get to go into the promised land. They, They have to wait. And this isn't a punishment. It's a discipline. Because at the end of that story, they get to go into the promised land. The same thing is going on here. There seems to be, and there is, a a pause on Israel as a whole. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected the salvation that was right in front of him. They rejected the new covenant that Jesus was bringing in. And so, what God does is He makes the Messiah and He makes the new covenant accessible to the world, to the Gentiles. The goal of that is that Israel would become jealous and they would realize what it is that they're missing out on. It's not to completely shut them away, not to make it impossible for them, but so that they might be jealous of what the Gentiles have. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul continues to explain that even his ministry, an apostle to the Gentiles, there's hope that the Jews would see what's going on and that they would turn and receive. So I drive a Toyota 4Runner. What makes that car really great is it has four-wheel drive, what makes it even better is I just got new tires on it. And so when this last snow came, I could drive pretty much no issue. They're kind of knobbier tires, and when I'd hit the brakes, I just stopped. I didn't slide. And I know, maybe, but I know that people were watching me drive around going, oh man, I wish I had that car. Especially the people who are just stuck in their driveways. They're jealous of what I have. want what I have. Until they realize it only gets like 12 miles to the gallon. (laughs) But that's besides the point. So this is what Paul is saying here. We as Gentiles kind of have a job to do. We're given a role in this plan. It's a pretty easy role. It's to take advantage of and enjoy all the blessings of the new covenant. To enjoy Jesus and his grace. That's our job. That's our role to play. So that way the Jews, Israel, would say. Grace that they, they're, they're experiencing. I want what they have. So that raises an application for us. Out. Would a Jew under the law be jealous of me? Or am I living so legalistically that to them it's basically the same thing? Am I living my life, am I am I actually operating under grace? Or am I putting a law, putting a burden on myself again? Would somebody who's bound to the law and thinks that they have to keep the law in order to be righteous look at me and say, oh yeah, that's definitely different. Or would they say, it's basically the same. Paul continues here and he says, if we get to experience those blessings and we should be experiencing those blessings while while the Jews are set aside, put on the shelf for now, How much more, when they accept the Messiah, will those blessings be? And so there is a glorious hope for Israel. And that hits home a little bit harder today, doesn't it? There is a glorious hope for Israel yet. During our meeting, John Arch is going to talk a little bit about um, that we have this next year, some critical issues. And I'll let him explain that. But one of these issues or one of these goals is this idea that every single one of us is a minister. Every single one of us is, is a minister. And there's kind of a tendency to think, well, the, the ministers are the pastors. My job, you could sum it up in one sentence, is to make much of Jesus and his grace. That's my job. That's also your job. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what it means that everyone is a minister. Is we make much of Jesus and his grace. And we do it here together with each other. You can do that at home with your kids or grandkids. You can do it at work with believers and unbelievers. We're ministers and we make much of Jesus and his grace. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here in verse uh, 16 through 24. it's kind of a long section so bear with me he says if the dough offered as first fruits is holy so is the whole lump and if the root is holy so are the branches so if some of the branches were broken off and you although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among them among the others now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree do not be arrogant towards the branches if you are remember it's not you who support the root but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let me just Make something clear here. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are not about individual salvation. And so there's a, there's a section here that sounds like, hey, maybe I might, get, I might get cut out. I might lose my salvation. We know from the end of chapter 8 that's not the case. There's nothing that will cut you off from the love of God. And so we have to ask ourselves what's going on? What's the root? What is it that we've been grafted into? And so I think if we think it through a little bit, what's something that Israel had that they lost that we now have? What's something that Israel had that they lost that we as the church now have? And I think it's the place of honor that is, that is to minister to the world. Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham, the patriarch, is I'm going to bless you in order that you might be a blessing to the world. Israel doesn't do that anymore. That's not their job. They've been cut off and wild branches have been grafted in. That's us. And so our job is now we've been grafted into this root, into this blessing in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. That's that's where we are. That's that's our new place in God's plan. It's a place of honor. Paul says, now don't get cocky, though. Because it is a place of honor. But there will be a day when that will switch. There will be a day when, when... it goes from the church back to Israel, being the conduit of God's grace to the world. So don't get, don't get too cocky. Okay, in case anyone's lost so far, Paul gives us basically what he's been saying this whole time in a nutshell in verses 25 through 32. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So here's, here's kind of the rub. This is, this is it in a nutshell. Right now, there is a partial hardening on Israel. Again, chapters 9, 10, and 11 aren't about individual salvation. These chapters are about Israel as a whole and Gentiles as a whole. And so there is a partial hardening on Israel, a hardening that's not complete. Israelites can still come to faith. This hardening has come on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So there is a day in which the fullness of the Gentiles will have come in. There is a day when the Gentile inclusion will be over. And at that day, a new age will begin. Only God knows that day. Only God knows the amount of Gentiles that is the fullness. And once that's up, once that time is over, the Deliverer, the Messiah, will return to His people. Jesus will return and he will deliver Israel. He will come back to Jerusalem. And at this time, he will establish his kingdom and his rule. At this time, he will, he will establish the blessings of the new covenant in their fullness to Israel and the rest of the world. Israel will have its king. Now Israel is really... An interesting topic here. Because there, there is a tension there. Because right now, and 2,000 years ago, they as a whole, they rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus. But that does not mean that God is going to reject them. That does not mean that God is, is finished with them. Look at verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. So has God rejected his people? By no means. No, he has not. And how do we know that God has not rejected his people? There's a remnant. They're believing Israelites today. There's a root that the Gentiles have been grafted into in order that the the Jews might become jealous of us and turn back to the Messiah. And there will be a return when Jesus comes back to deliver his people. So that leaves us with a question. As an audience who's mostly Gentile, so what? What? What what, what does this have to do with us? How can I apply this to my life today? Well, I think there's, there's three major things that we can do with this. First, enjoy the blessings of grace. Make much of Jesus and his grace. Live your life in the new covenant. Don't put a law on yourself again. Second, God is a God who keeps His promises. God does not make promises and then decide He's not going to keep them. He he doesn't just make a done with somebody, and puts them out and says, "I'm not I'm not dealing with you anymore." That's not how He works. Promises between humans are weak and borderline pointless. There's always a way out. There's always a loophole. God doesn't deal in loopholes. He keeps the promises he makes. And lastly, I think we should praise. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We don't know all the details of how this is going to work out. We don't know everything. We do know that God will work it out, though. We do know He will. We know that God is good and wise. And there's a lot of unknown, there's a lot of uncertainty. But this this very last verse is vastly encouraging in the face of uncertainty. God is the source of all things. God sustains and gives direction to all things. And God is the reason for all things. So we don't, in a sense, need to stress over the details. And we can worship Him instead. After all, I think that God knows what he's doing, right? As we transition here, we've got some key questions or reflection questions as we'll transition to a time of doing those. Um, would someone under law be jealous of my freedom? Would they even know that I'm living a life under grace? What promises do I doubt that God will keep? And why, do I, why do I doubt those? Is God's unsearchable mercy, unfathomable wisdom, and inscrutable character enough? In the face of of how is this going to work, how is God going to keep his promises, is God's character enough? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who live in that grace, that others would look at us and say, I want what they have, Lord. Um, Lord, I pray that, that we would trust you in your character, in, in your mercy, in your wisdom, in the face of the unknown. Lord, it's in your name that I pray. Amen.